Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Inside Intercom. This week features the return of one of our favorite past guests. That's Mule Design Studio co-founder, Erica Hall. If you're not familiar with Mule Design, they provide strategy and workshops to help clients level up their design, research, and content strategy. They've worked with folks ranging from Intuit to the Wikimedia Foundation. And if you're not familiar with Erica, a good place to start is her classic book, Just Enough Research. It's the defining guide how to collect better user insights, which is something that all of us who build products should definitely do. Speaking of Erica's writing, she's actually got a new book dropping on March 6th. It's called Conversational Design, a topic we at Intercom hold dear to our hearts and something that is much bigger than chatbots, interactions that take place within a messenger window or something you might shout at Alexa. So in this episode, I popped in the Mule Design studio and sat down with Erica, along with her well-behaved dog, Rupert, to learn what the art of verbal communication, essentially the world's first interface, can teach us about designing digital experiences today. If you like what you hear and want more of Erica's insights, we're actually giving away a handful of free copies of Conversational Design to listeners. Simply contact us through the messenger at insideintercom.com, share why this resonates with you, and you'll be entered to win. But now, without further ado, let's have a conversation about conversational design with Erica Hall. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Erica Hall, welcome back to Inside Intercom. Hi, it's great to be here again. <laughs> and we have, a, we have another guest with us in the studio. Do you want to introduce who else is here? Oh yeah, napping in my lap is my lap dog Rupert. He's my my podcast emotional support chug. Well, that that makes me feel better about things. Yeah, see. So as mentioned, you're one of our few repeat guests. We had you back on in August 2016. What have you been up to in the last year and a half? I know the workshops at Mule Design have really taken off. Can you give us a flavor of that? Yeah. So you know we've been running mule design since, uh, well, pretty much the entire 21st century. And we've worked for, it, it's true, it's terrifying when I, I say, oh, we started at the end of 2001, which is now a very, very long time ago. And we've worked with organizations of all descriptions from the earliest, earliest startups to you know multinational foundations and giant corporations. And now what we've found What's really changed in in the industry is organizations are building up internal design teams now, and often quite rapidly. So because we've gotten all of this expertise and had all these incredible adventures working with all these clients over the years, we've developed a series of workshops and other training and consulting to really help coach and mentor internal teams so that they can benefit from our mistakes and maybe develop, you know, that, that strong point of view a little faster and be able to have more strategic thinking and do more of the thinking like an external agency, which can sometimes be difficult in on an internal design team. You've also been doing a lot of writing recently, which is one reason we're really excited to talk to you. Your new book, Conversational Design, is out on a book apart on March 6th. So first of all, congratulations on Pins Down. Oh, thank you so much. I am so, so excited to to be done writing a book. Of course, now I have to promote a book, so that's a whole different muscle. Yeah, I am so happy to be talking instead of typing alone, which is ironic because that's one of the things I advise people not to do is sit alone in despair typing. And uh, there's just a little bit of that. 
we'll get, we'll get into the idea that the writer probably shouldn't be sitting in a room opposite of all the designers here in a minute, but just to tee off the conversation, I mean, what was the elevator pitch for the book when you came to your publishers? What were you saying you were setting out to do? What was your thesis? Well, it all started a decade ago when I gave a talk at the Future of Web Apps in London about copy in the interface. It was called something like Copy is Interface because I wanted designers to pay more attention to language and not just think, oh, it's a it's visual design, it's interaction design, and we can lorm ipsum out the words. So that talk went really well and people were really interested in it. And so that I thought would be my first book would be on interface. Before language. just enough research. Before just enough research. But I wasn't at the time, you know, I was so involved in the the client work and I just wasn't quite ready to take on a book. And then I had the idea for just enough research and I wrote that and then it needed a little break after that. And then, especially given everything that's happened in the industry with the rise of voice interfaces and messaging interfaces and chatbots and all of this, I thought, wow, no one has quite talked about what I was talking about in exactly the same way. So I thought there was still an opportunity and it really seemed like the moment to go back to it. So when we say conversational design, you sort of hinted this, but we're not just talking about what happens within a messenger, which I think is how most people throw around the phrase, at least in the last year or so. What falls under that umbrella to you? Because I think it's a wider definition. Yeah, I'm really thinking about taking a deeper look at the mechanics and, and principles that make human conversation possible and extending those as a way of thinking about interaction design and interface design to make it uh, more device independent and more natural for people in a way that doesn't always involve you know talking to your computer or having a chat with your computer but really looking at human conversation as a model for all interactions with digital systems, because right now we're at a point where digital systems are inserting themselves into every realm of human activity. You know, every relationship, every transaction, it's now possible to mediate it through a digital system. And so to look at why interacting with people works as well as it does and applying those principles to interactions so that they feel human and humane and not like you're having a bad interaction with a machine. So one of the things I really enjoyed about the book, particularly early on, is you spilt on this principle that conversation is actually the original interface, which when you think about it, makes total sense. So what is it about conversation that you feel like is being lost today when you're interacting with the digital experience? What are like the core principles that maybe we've lost sight of over time? I think one of the the really key principles is the idea of having a shared goal, because that's one of the things that makes conversation work between or among people. And that's, I mean, that's kind of a miracle when you think, you know, you think really people are intelligent systems walking around and you can't directly see what's in somebody else's mind. But as long as you speak the same language, you can very quickly exchange information with them. Like if you're in a strange city and you walk up to somebody on the street, you can ask them for directions. And there's kind of a protocol 
that makes that possible. You know, there's a there's conventional phrases we use, like there's kind of a tacit agreement that it's okay to make that request. Like if you walked up to somebody on the street corner in New York and you asked them how to get to the Empire State Building, I don't think anybody would be appalled or think it was strange for you to do that. It would be, oh, that's that's a totally okay thing. And you think, well, what makes it work? What makes it okay to walk up to any stranger and ask them that question, but perhaps not ask them another question, like not ask them a personal question? Mm-hmm. Like there are all of these unspoken rules. And if we look at what's beneath those and say, okay, well, how do we have a system that makes it very clear, well, here's what the system allows you to do. Here's what's okay to do. Here's what won't work. And to really think about how you establish that kind of a a sense of a shared goal, because that's really what makes conversation work. If you were to ask somebody for directions and they were to spin off into another tangent and sort of talk about uh, architectural history, that would be strange and antisocial, and you would never expect somebody to do that. And that would almost be like a hostile act. You know, if you were like, wow, I need to get to my friend's office. They're in the Empire State Building. Can you show me that direction? If that person were to waste your time, uh, you'd think, wow, that was that was some sort of like violation. And that was actually kind of rude. But there are so many digital systems that do that, right? Mm-hmm. You go to the system with an intent And that system diverts you, whether with advertising or giving you irrelevant information or not giving you the basic information you need to have a successful interaction. So it's really looking at why can it be so comfortable to interact with people and so much less comfortable to interact with computers? And how can we make that more like a good interaction with another person? Because now we're interacting with computers for things we used to interact with with people for, like even ordering a pizza. I think the directions example is, is really interesting because there's something that you didn't explicitly say there, but that's heavily implied and that's trust. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, you're trusting that this, this person that you are making eye contact with and asking for help is going to guide you in the right direction. I think that's something that's particularly relevant today when we have digital systems that we work with for our finances, for mm-hmm. healthcare, I mean, all these things that are incredibly sensitive. Yeah, abs- Absolutely. And the idea that a system would not give you what you need in the same way, you know, somebody, a resident of a city would help a tourist. But there are a lot of a lot of systems that kind of violate those principles and not even intentionally so often. But I think because the like designers and developers and writers don't think about it like that, we still even to this day, even with all this talk about human-centered design, we're still designing in a very device-centered way. We still think screens first. And even when we think about having voice interactions, we're still really thinking like interacting with the device first, rather than really saying, let's set aside whatever hardware, whatever software, and just think about what kind of exchange is going to happen between the system and the individual person, customer, user, human. Is this part of the reason why it seems like if I am speaking to Alexa, I can get some music played or some lights turned off, but when it goes beyond that, there's just so much of a struggle. It really isn't easier for me to accomplish my goal in a lot of ways. Yeah, it really, really isn't easier. You know, thinking about shopping is a great example because Amazon is just 
a machine for taking my money, right? So like Jeff Bezos has taken all of my money. I am just Amazon primed up for everything. And, you know, I really, I do try to support local bookstores and shops and things, but if I'm not supporting a local independent shop that I really like and want to continue to exist, basically all my money is going to Amazon. But then they put this device in my home and I have one in the kitchen and I use it mostly to listen to uh, music or, or podcasts when I'm cooking. But even though I give all my money to Amazon, I can't shop using Alexa. And you know, statistics show that very relatively few people do relative to the other a- actions like setting a timer because it's so much harder. It's so easy for me to flip open my laptop or uh, tap a few buttons on my phone but it's really, really hard because you have to have extra information. You have to have visuals. You have to know, like there's so many choices that you could possibly make to shop and the implications are significant, right? Jeff Bezos will get more of my money. And that doesn't happen if it accidentally, if Alexa accidentally plays the wrong song, I'm not gonna be out a hundred dollars as opposed to ordering, thinking I'm ordering, you know, one box of detergent and accidentally getting a hundred. What do you think it is that's, driving that impetus to go straight to sketch and design for screen rather than taking a step back and and analyzing, okay, what is it? What is the agreement that I am entering in with the person on the other side of this conversation? I do the person that's using your product and the goal of what it is they're trying to accomplish. Why, why the jump to screens? Because interactive design still comes out of graphic design and industrial design, and it's still very artifact driven And that's still how we conceive of work, right? We're working with things, we're making tangible things. Whereas really at this point, a lot of design is thinking through the ideas and the concepts and things that are expressed in words. And the start of the design process really should be sitting in a room and talking, but we've defined that either as meetings, which everyone hates because, I mean, that's a whole other topic (laughs) for for several other books about why meetings are terrible, even though communicating well, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Communicating with other humans is fun and can be really pleasant, but meetings are terrible. And we just don't think of sitting around and talking as design work. So there's, I think, and, and designers haven't been taught that that's part of design work, right? Design is, is really about like, Oh, I create some sort of artifact, even if it's a schematic or a diagram. And I think when that happens, it's really easy to evaluate the polish of the artifact or the appeal of the sketch rather than really thinking, is this a good idea? Does the idea have value? And that's really where you have to start as a designer. And you have to be able to express that in words. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript, It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. 
The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So sort of jumping off that artifact-based approach, I think when you look at the artifact output of, of writing, you see a lot of like old school literary examples, the type of stuff we learned writing in the classic education sense coming up, which is not conversational writing for a system or an interface. What other types of examples of, of writing can designers look at for inspiration on how to do this well? I think designers really should look at poetry. And this might sound funny because what happens, this happens to us all the time when you start to think about designing something new, what you do is you look at other apps or you look at other websites and you see the same sort of bad practices and the same poorly thought out concepts and the same sort of vague, like people are talking about innovation and solutions and systems and using all these really vague words. And and it's really easy. You can see companies and products and services have borrowed this same language. So you have to step away and look at examples outside of that if you really want to be unique and powerful with your concepts and your language. And the reason poetry is so good is poetry works in time. And when we think about interactions, interactions take place in time. But so often we design things graphically and and put space first and foremost. And you can make something that's really beautiful as a spatial object, but just takes a lot of time to interact with. And the other thing that poetry has is often very concrete language, you know, a real economy of language. Most often, one of the objectives of a poem is to pack a lot of meaning into a very compact space. Every word matters. Yeah, every word really does matter. And often the word can have meanings on several levels. And I think looking at poetry can can really pull you out of the cliches of interaction design and just start to get your mind working in different ways and thinking about you know, life and time and all of the things that you're working with. Because when you're when you're designing an interaction for somebody, what you're really doing is you're demanding their attention and their time and a part of their life. And you want to make the most of it. And so that's a great place to look. And also jokes are a great place to look, right? Because comedy is uh, is really enjoyable and it's really hard. It's very difficult to be a good comedy writer. And it's often something that's done in collaboration. You know, comedy writers sit around a table and work through jokes with each other to see what lands. And there's an expectation that the bar is very high to be funny and that it's okay to put things out there and say, oh, wow, that didn't, in my head, that was really funny and it didn't work at all. And so I think taking it to that level, as opposed to, oh, I made something really beautiful and didn't really pay attention to how I was using time or how I was using language. 
And so I prioritized the wrong aspects of the experience. The other thing that I, I like about that stand-up comedy example or improv comedy, if, if you want to go that route, is that it's always evolving. And when I picture sort of the non-conversational way of creating copy for the web or for digital product, it's the content designer or the writer or whatever you want to call them sort of off on their, their own. There's a bunch of comments and track changes and then the copy is approved and it's out of their hands and it's this waterfall process down to the next person rather than this sort of evolution collaborative process. How can we improve collaboration between writers and designers? It really is a matter of getting in a room together and talking. And that's something that, that feels because of our education and because of our work culture, it doesn't feel like work. And I think especially with writing, there's a sense of, oh, it has to be precise and it has to be final and it has to be approved. And if you think about the code that goes into our systems, that would be ridiculous to think about code like that, to say, oh, the code has been approved and there are no revisions. But when we're talking about our online services, of course, like everybody realizes like Google is different probably every single day. Slack is different every single day. The code is constantly evolving. And I think we we need to think about the words in the same way to say, okay, well, today, this was the best way to write this particular message or phrase this particular response. But now we've thought about it a little bit differently and we're gonna change up how our system talks to our user and just have it be this constantly evolving process. But because we borrow from the same sort of you know, literary approach that we learned in school and learned when we're being trained as writers and that's instantiated in our tools. Like part of the problem is we don't have tools for working in this way. We have tools for track changes. We have tools for leaving comments. We have tools for passing a document back and forth. We don't have tools that we feel like there are tools, but they're sort of not blessed for use as design tools. Like I'd say speech to text recording and transcription is really, really good now. So you could just like sit in a room, have a conversation, record it, transcribe it, and pull your interface out of that. But that is a a scary, crazy process that seems like, oh, you're making that up and that it doesn't look like work. It doesn't feel like work. And it, it sounds like you're trying to get around doing your actual job. So you have this concept you highlight in the book that's part of sort of the early discovery process of how this language or personality or, or conversation really come to life. You call it the, probably going to stutter over my words here, mini, minimal meaningful conversation. I knew mm-hmm. I was going to stumble over that, um, which is sort of the antithesis of the MVP that you hear thrown around so much in Lean UX. Can you walk us through what the minimal meaningful conversation mm-hmm. is and what the collaborative process is for putting it together? Yeah, it really is starting like before you sketch anything at all or envision anything, you sit down and talk through an abstract interaction between somebody in the world and what you want to design to really think, okay, how do we really see our customer envisioning their need? Like how would it occur to them that they needed something? Okay, how would they encounter us? What would their request be? How would we respond to that request? Right. In a way that would help them as quickly as possible in the same way that you can imagine somebody asking for directions and thinking that through and saying, okay, like what would a really successful interaction be that would be very satisfying and very intelligible and very fast? Because I think what a lot of designers still 
underestimate is the importance of speed. And like, this is something that Google really gets right. Mm -hmm. Like with Google, like using Google's search engine, the interface has barely changed at all over time. And I think one of the reasons is because it's so fast to use. And it's really, you talk about failing fast. If you type in a search term and you get the wrong results, like people don't even think, like I've seen this in, you know, in like usability tests, watching people use search, people don't even kind of register that there's a problem if they get bad search results because the response is so fast and it also educates the user on how to get a better response. And so users can type in like three things to get closer and closer to what they're actually looking for and never register that there's been a failure because the system's really supporting them. And so I think if you go back and you step away, and again, this can feel very unsatisfying to people who work in artifacts to say, okay, you're not going to draw anything. You're going to sit down with your annoying colleagues, you know, and you're just going to talk it through uh, before you prototype anything. You're, you're really going to have to understand what's going on in your prospective customer user's mind. You're going to have to really think deeply about what can we offer that's really valuable and how can we get it to them very, very quickly to help them meet their goal. And then once you have that sort of clarity, only then should you be talking about, is it an app? Is it a website? Is it going to be more comfortable for them to speak aloud or to type something? And and like you're only going to really be able to understand what mode and what artifacts make sense once you think about the person's context totally apart from any sort of device. Now I can really understand how we get to these interfaces that are conversational on the surface. Maybe it's a chatbot experience, but not conversational in practice. And that I've now had to take go through a 20-step decision tree to maybe get my flight changed yeah. and still not really be sure. Exactly. Exactly. But with, I mean, with a person, because you know, just because the people, the way people work, you could be on the phone with somebody and say, yeah, I want to go from Atlanta to New York. And that's really intelligible. But if the responses are really constrained on the system side, the choices have to be really constrained on the front end. And that's what will make it fast and successful. So who, in terms of the principles that you believe make really good conversational design, who can we look at and learn from? What are some really good examples? Well, I'd say, like, like I mentioned, Google is really good, even though it's not. it doesn't seem conversational on the surface. The way that that interaction with Google search is so fast and gives you good feedback and the goals of Google search as a product are really well aligned with what somebody needs in terms of searching. Uh, I think Slack is really good in terms of making it feel really human to interact with your coworkers, even though you're you're actually just typing at each other and seeing little avatars. It can still really feel like you're in a room with your friends, your colleagues, or your coworkers. Even though the language in their onboarding feels mm-hmm. that way too. Yeah. And even if you go back and you look at Flickr, the photo sharing site that Stuart Butterfield, uh, the founder of Slack, co-founded and then sold to Yahoo, even though that was a site about images, it was still very conversational. And language was a really, really important part of what made it feel like a system that was created by humans for humans. So with every piece of written work, there's something that gets left on the cutting room floor that maybe was in your original pitch or in in your mind 10 years ago when this idea first came (laughs) in your head. But now that you have 140 pages on paper maybe not there anymore. What's maybe one thing that you left out or would have emphasized more if 
you didn't have to stick to a page count. Well, I, first of all, I, re- I really have to thank my editors for restraining me and for uh, killing all the things I, I wanted to keep in that process. But I think one of the things that got cut way down or possibly totally eliminated was thinking about naming. And names are really important because those are the the hooks that people have for interacting with any sort of product or service, right? Because humans are really terrible at remembering things and computers are really good at remembering things. And if you want somebody to use your product or service, and especially if you want people to tell other people about it. Like, it's so funny how much businesses talk about the net promoter score, which is like, how likely are you to recommend this to a friend? Mm -hmm. But they don't name products or services or pricing tiers to help people do that. Like, I love looking at the way that, that companies set up their pricing with like basic, basic plus, basic plus extra super max. And there's nothing in the way that they name those to help people understand what's in them. And the same thing happens with a lot of startups because, you know, startups often choose their names based on what domain is available. And they don't think like, is this a name that's easy to pronounce? Is this a name that's easy to remember? Is this a name that doesn't make you feel like an idiot saying it out loud, right? And I call that the dog park test, right? Would would you be comfortable shouting this across a room and not feel like an idiot? And and so I think those are kind of the oral properties of language that are related to to conversation because, you know, we've been talking for 150,000 years and only writing for eh, maybe 6,000. So thinking about what it's like to say and to speak the name is really, really important and often kind of either thought about in the wrong way by marketing people, again, optimizing for the wrong things, optimizing for how it looks on paper or for being clever. Like one of the best examples is Zobni, which X-O-B-N-I, which is inbox backwards, which is a total like printed written joke. But if you say it out loud, it sounds like a pharmaceutical name that nobody could ever remember. I had no idea what you were referring to. In fact, I had to replay that name back in my head just to make sure that I heard it correctly. Yeah. So even if you're writing for an interface that you expect people to interact with by typing and reading, you have to say it out loud. And you also have to do that for accessibility reasons, because there will always be people who switch modes. There will be people who will have things read to them that are written or who will have things that are audio captioned with closed captioning. So you always have to work in a multimodal way. And just thinking about like names is probably the greatest point of failure around that, around product names, is people always treat them like something that is going to be written or typed or something like that. So I think that dropped out a little bit. And that's an area where, you know, a great example is Mint.com, the financial services company that really invested in a fantastic name. And they had to pay for that domain. I know they had to pay a lot of money for it, but I think that was a part, it was like the centerpiece of their whole design system that involved, you know, minty green colors and really human language. And it really all turned on making that critical product choice of their name up front. So let's say five years from now, if there's something that someone might say, you know, I did this this way and it's because I read conversational design, 
what are you hoping people will do or think about differently as a result of reading this book? Oof. Um, I would say focus less on, like, think less that the value is in the interface and more on what actual value is in the system. For example, don't think I'm making a chatbot. Don't think I'm making a voice interface. Don't think, you know, I'm making a mobile app, but really think, oh, I'm creating a system that provides real value to people that can be expressed in words that's as easy or easier to interact with than having a, a friendly human being there ready to do your bidding. I'm going to help get this done better, faster, easier than another solution. Exactly. Awesome. Well, the book is Conversational Design. It is out March 6th. Where can our listeners go to pre-order the book or just generally learn more about what you're up to, maybe where you're speaking, what Rupert's doing? <laughs> well, what's, what Rupert is doing is, uh, is definitely on Instagram. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's muledesign.com uh, if, uh, if they want... Uh, to have us come in and shout at their inter internal design teams in a very friendly and helpful way. And the book is available uh, directly from a bookapart.com. Great. Awesome. Well, Eric, yeah. thanks so much. Rupert, well-behaved. Our first <laughs> podcast talk. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was, it was fantastic to be back. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.